Hello and welcome. This is Renee Sills. Thanks for tuning in. Today is Tuesday, March 12th, and I'm excited for this podcast, which has been mostly focused on astrology for the last four years, to expand and change. One of the things I'm most excited about is using this space for conversation with other teachers, astrologers, intuitives, activists, and brilliant human beings. I've got some great conversations lined up, and I'm planning to release them as podcasts about once a month or so. I'll still be offering new and full moon astrology and horoscopes and month ahead embodied astrology transmissions, as well as regular guided meditations and sound healing. So there's a lot to look forward to. You can stay tuned with all of it by following me on SoundCloud, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. And of course, follow me on Instagram where you can find me at embodied astrology or Renee Means Rebirth. In today's podcast, I'm talking about intuition and energy, racism, whiteness, and shifting yoga culture with Michelle Johnson. Michelle is a social justice warrior, empath, yoga teacher, and author. She leads anti-racism trainings across the country and works on the front lines of movements with individuals and groups to incorporate healing practices as tools for social justice. Along with these paths, she's also an intuitive healer and uses her gifts to support other healers and activists. Michelle's awareness of the world has been largely shaped through her experience as a Black woman. She knows firsthand how power and privilege operate, and she has a deep understanding of how oppression and trauma impact the mind, body, spirit, and heart. Michelle's book, Skill in Action, Radicalizing Your Yoga Practice to Create a Just World, is rooted in this understanding and aims to inspire change by allowing people to reintegrate their humanity and wholeness within a world that is so often fragmenting. If you enjoy our conversation and want to work further with Michelle, I'll be one of a few co-hosts welcoming her back to Portland next month for her Skill in Action workshop, April 12th through 14th, 2019. You can find more information on the workshop in the show notes at michellecjohnson.com or solaschool.com, that's S-O-L-A school. The other co-hosts for this event include Commotion Studio and The Bhakti Shop, and all of the info for Michelle's events will be on their sites as well. Again, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Michelle as much as I did. I guess at the beginning of a conversation, I always like to just get centered with whoever I'm listening to or talking with. So um, I thought it might be a place to start just by talking about where we are <laughs> in this room and how you got here and how we met mm-hmm. and the moment of relationship that we're in. If that sounds okay. Sounds good. Um, so here we are at my house. It's Wednesday. It's February 26th. Sure. Yeah. Somewhere around there. Um, and you are in the middle of a a trip, some travels that are pretty thorough. So do you want to say a few words about where you are today? Yes. I am happy to be with Renee and Renee's house, and I just got back from Kalama, Washington. I was co-leading a retreat for um, mostly people of color who are leaders of nonprofits. And the retreat, the focus of the retreat is self-care and sustainability, collaboration and communication. Cool. And you're kind of in the, it's not even the middle yet of this year, but seems like Since I first met you, um, you've been traveling, you've been moving around a lot, doing a lot of different things. Do you want to say anything about what you've been up to recently? Yeah, so I um, lived in Portland for a year and moved back to North Carolina at the end of June. Um, 
or July because I drove myself across country to do a book tour. And since the book tour, I've been traveling all over the country, leading workshops about yoga and justice. And I also lead workshops about um, dismantling racism and creating race equity. So I've been all over the the place and it, it is still the beginning of the year, but it feels like <laughs> the middle of the year to me because of all of the airplanes yeah. and time zones. And I feel really excited that your work is, um, I don't know what the word is. It's like, you're so busy, but I feel so excited that so many people want to work with you. Um, and I hope that you get enough immune boosters as you're flying around, but it feels like it's a really good moment um, for all of us to be receiving what you're teaching and offering. Thank you. I'm excited about the um, just how receptive people have been um, to me, to my work. And I feel like people, um, they were hungry for a, a conversation about justice and yoga. I'm not the first person who's talked about justice and yoga and I am pretty direct about anti-racism and yoga. And so I think there's something about my work that's resonating very deeply um, with lots of people. And I'm grateful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, before we get into that, I'd love to know a little bit more about you and how you arrived um, to this work, if you would be willing to share, like what What was it or what were the things that got you onto the path that you're on? Yeah, I um, was on the board for North Carolina Lambda Youth Network about 20-ish years ago, maybe 19 years ago. I was living in um, Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and um, North Carolina Lambda Youth Network sent all of the board members to a dismantling racism training. I'd been interested in um, organizing and been part of activist circles and social change spaces, but I had not been to a dismantling racism training um, before they sent us. And so we went to this dismantling racism training on an old plantation in South Carolina, and my trainers um, were Tema and Bree, and I remember feeling like I learned language to describe my experience in a way that I just hadn't um, thought about it, talked about it. Like I learned about personal, institutional, and cultural racism. And so I had um, some way of describing uh, the experience of racism. And it was new. There was new awareness around it. And so after that training, I went back to North Carolina and I met with Tema and Kenneth Jones, um, who they were connected to Change Works, which became Dismantling Racism Works. And I ended up training up with them to become an anti-racism trainer and trained with uh, Dismantling Racism Works for about 20 years and um, stopped training with them when I moved to Portland because our group uh, shifted its work and way of working when I moved. And so that's how I entered the Dismantling Racism work, although I've been black for 43 years. So I feel like I entered um, a racist culture when I was born and had to try to navigate spaces um, and also had to uh, understand what I was internalizing from the culture um, about being black. And so that was like my formal training or training up to become a dismantling racism trainer. And then I started to practice yoga in 
well, I took some classes in college, but then I really started to practice consistently about, I don't know, 18 years ago, maybe. And I remember practicing in spaces that were mostly white and I learned from white teachers and I remember feeling like I was being invited into a practice about liberation and understanding our suffering um, without the actual space or the teachers understanding that they were perpetuating suffering because of how the space was constructed and how isolated I felt in it. And so the experience of like being black, being a dismantling racism trainer and practicing yoga in predominantly white spaces that then just re-traumatized me because they reflected the larger culture, dominant culture, that led me to want to have a conversation about justice and um, yoga and anti-racism and yoga and how to create inclusive spaces. Okay, thank you. I want to ask you more questions about all of those things now. <laughs> it's a long answer. Yeah, no, well, it's great. It's, um, I'm sure it could be much longer to really know where you've come from. Um, in terms of your work with Dismantling Racism, though, this is an organization, correct? Dismantling Racism? A collective of trainers um, who we worked together for um, about two decades, but there was a group before that working, and then I entered into that group. Okay. And is there um, something about this collective or the approach that you all take that is unique or different than other race trainings, or how would you say that, that your work there um, has been built, or where are you in the process with it right now? I think, um, you know, our trainings are based on critical race theory, which most race equity trainings are. So there's some um, shared language that's introduced to groups, and then a shared framework about personal, institutional, and cultural racism, and information about the history of the race construct. But those things feel like they're part of every dismantling racism training. And what I think differentiated our trainings um, from other race equity trainings is the fact that we moved through embodied practice. Um, at some point, we realized, and I realized, that you know we're talking about racism and we're replicating it as we're talking about it, and we are talking about trying to like navigate space in a different way, and we need to be embodied. And so that would include breath work. It would include some physical embodiment of um, oppression and power and privilege, white supremacy and racism. Um, and we tried to facilitate things in a way that where we could hold the tension of like talking about racism with, while trying to minimize harm because we had people of color in the spaces and white people. Um, and so I think that's the thing, like embodied practice, mind, body practice, a connection to remembering to remember um, when we talk about the history of the race construct. And also, I, I feel like we built containers that had the capacity to hold grief. Mm -hmm. And I have not experienced very many race equity trainings that center attention on grief. Mm -hmm. Um. To, to go back to something that you just said a moment ago, what is it about the talking about race that you were experiencing as replicating uh, oppression or replicating white supremacy? We, dismantling racism works, we created a list of assumptions. And so one of them is there's no way to talk about racism without replicating it when we're in um, spaces that are mixed um, racially. Because 
we're going through a history of the race construct and we're asking people of color to view the, the history and a history that as a person of color, like I know in my body and my cells and there's all the ancestral trauma connected to it. So we're like looking at slides of traumatic, violent things that have happened in history to explain the history that race was constructed and people of color are having this experience um, of watching it and a lived experience of racism. And in the context of a dismantling racism training, white people are learning about racism. And it's always at the expense of people of color in that context. Mm-hmm. Because people of color are having to sit through something and relive it while white people are like having an aha about race being constructed. And so that's what I mean when I say there's no way to talk about it without replicating it in a space that's um, mixed. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for explaining yeah. that. So in, cause you lead, you facilitate groups that are primarily or fully POC or black and then also primarily or fully white probably. And then mixed. Yes. And more of my work now is about creating healing spaces for people of color and I'll do race equity trainings and lead them in mixed spaces too. Mm-hmm. Like the focus um, has shifted some, because of working with folks of color and what we need around this conversation about racism, I think is different because of what we're internalizing from the culture mm-hmm. and then what we're perpetuating, which mm-hmm. is we don't always have time in a dismantling racism training to dive into that yeah. as much as we need to. Is that um, also the case with the skill in action workshops that you're doing that it's, it's primarily for people of color no, skill in action is for anyone. That's for anyone. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, would you be willing to talk a little bit about, in your experience, um, how uh, pe- what, what people's different needs are, and as a facilitator, what that does for you as a, as a black woman facilitating um, being an educator with white folks and then also leading the POC groups? Like, how do you notice um, people needing support or what are, you know, what are those spaces in in your experience? What I've noticed in um, workshops, skill in action or dismantling racism workshop, or I led an online um, series for people of color about healing ourselves and healing our communities. I noticed that people of color, we don't have many spaces just for us, like created by us. And, um, we don't, I'm just generalizing, don't get to experience um, not a disconnection from white supremacy, but like a departure or vacation from white supremacy. We don't get that and very much. And so these spaces that are just for people of color, my intention is to have a space where we don't have to contend with white supremacy as much as we do when we just walk around and like go to work and are in the grocery store and all the spaces that are mixed and, um, that are connected to white supremacy. And I, and you know, for white folks, I think I'm holding the tension I named that white people are learning about racism in a culture that says, don't talk about white supremacy or racism. Don't actually talk about being white. Don't talk about privilege. Um, and in spaces where white people, I think feel, scared of making a mistake. And so, um, I don't feel as much apprehension in spaces when I'm facilitating with just people of color as when I am facilitating in a, for a predominantly white group or a mixed group, there's just more 
tension in those spaces because it feels like an exhale, I think, for folks of color to be with each other. Mm-hmm. And it feels like um, maybe it's the, the opposite. Maybe it is the inhale or expansion or something that's happening, but there's like the moment before you exhale. And that's what I think is going on in these other spaces where there's this dynamic tension where we have to like white people have to like see people of color and their experience, or they have to deal with the fact that cultures told them not to talk about racism and whiteness and its impact on people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so when you're holding space for grief, you're holding space for a lot of grief everywhere. Yes. And then from white folks, a, a certain kind of grief that is mixed with a lot of surprise for many people and fear and also dismissal or some kind of defense as well. Mm-hmm. And then you would be the one to speak to, to what that space is for folks of color. But I know, um, or I imagine it must be a, a really potent mix of emotions that you hold. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, while I experience people of color spaces just differently than, um, white spaces or mixed spaces, I think the culture, um, doesn't, make space for us to grieve. So there's this whole like cultural norm around not naming racism or white supremacy. And then there's a layer of that connected to not talking about the losses that we've experienced and then the grief. Mm -hmm. And, and I've said this before, like, I don't think um, in different conversations that I don't think we can heal as a culture unless we grieve and culture says, don't grieve. Even when I have had a personal loss, like in my family, culture has said, you have three days off and then you need to come back to work. And yeah, you can be a little sad or whatever, but you need to work, right? There hasn't been space. And I feel like we need to acknowledge and to grieve. And some of that will be done together in mixed spaces racially. And some of it will be done and um, just groups of white folks and people of color. And if there are biracial or multiracial people, that might be another group that would be together to grieve. I'm not sure because I don't have that identity. Um, But I do think we need to make space to grieve Mm -hmm. and do it collectively. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm really interested in how we can make spaces that are, um, that can hold the container of a specific experience. Like I think, you know, Black people probably need a certain kind of space to grieve within the larger POC mm-hmm. community that's unique. Yes. And the same would go for Native Americans, for folks from Asia, wherever, you know, and being able to share stories and have a shared sentiment. Um, but then I'm also interested in, like, how these spaces then mix together. How do we talk to each other in the process of grieving or when we feel like we've been able to let go of enough that we can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, part of what I hear and what you're saying is that, um, and I've seen this in trainings that people of color, I feel like, you know, there's like a, um, certain amount of amount of like, we only have a certain I'm trying to figure out how to say this. You probably have to edit this. Like our capacity is limited as far as how much we can hold like white people's grief. Yeah. Because we're grieving. We're, we're experiencing racism every minute of every day and having to recover from the trauma of microaggressions and 
uh, which I think are macro too, um, and white supremacy and racism. And so it means we don't always have the capacity to hold tears or hold like the new awareness and then the sadness about it that white people might feel as they learn more about what racism has actually done to them and to people of color and what they've done, like how they perpetuated it. Right. Yeah, no, I fully agree. I mean, I think it's hopefully not too far away and I think already happening a lot that people are doing enough work on their own to then come together and have some kind of transformation or, Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I feel like unsure of what words to use because the words that I have feel capitalist and that like, oh, there's a constructive or like productive outcome to some right. meeting. And it feels like there's, you know, a lot of tearing away that we all mm-hmm. are doing. And um, yeah, from the the perspective of a white person, you know, that I am just so deeply honored and, and grateful to the folks of color and the black people and black women in particularly mm-hmm. that are that are like willing to step in mm-hmm. and write a book or mm-hmm. give a talk or sit and field questions for a long time because it it seems like a really slow dawning for a lot of us and um yeah I I regularly have moments where I'll like have an epiphany about something and part of the epiphany is like oh my god this is really old news to someone else. Right. And, yeah. and something that like that the experience I have often of, you know, holding space for someone to learn. Um, and as a yoga teacher, we do this all the time. It's like, mm-hmm. I'm just going to give you some pointers and like watch you fumble around and, and learn this principle that at some point is then going to feel really basic. Right. Um, that on a, on a more emotional level that, is really entwined with a lot of deep patterning and grief. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So thank you for doing all the work that you're doing. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Um, so originally I had um, been really interested in talking with you about your practice as an intuitive healer. We met um, through your work with Skill in Action, which um, hopefully we'll talk about too, your book. And... Um, the yoga community, but then I was on your website and saw you're an intuitive healer. And that gave me a a completely different context to relate with. So I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that, what that means to you. Yeah, I um, moved to North Carolina in 1996 to get my master's in social work. And I was um, in private practice for about 20 years. I think 21 years and I closed my practice when I moved to Portland. And so I was a therapist and worked with folks who, and I think everyone's experienced trauma, but my specialty was in working with folks who um, experienced, had experienced sexual violence or intimate partner violence. And I did some racial identity work. Um, And I also worked with folks who had eating disorders. And so I did that for years and years and years while being a anti-racism trainer. And then I became a yoga teacher because I wanted to integrate yoga into my private practice. And I think about four, maybe three years before I closed the practice, I started to feel mm, like, I think constricted or um, just constrained in what I was able to offer clients 
I was taking insurance. I had a sledding scale. I was diagnosing people, people to then get paid through insurance. I, um, was deepening my own spiritual practice and ritual and struggling with how to bring that into a ther- the context of therapy um, within the context of insurance and diagnosing and assessing people. And so I felt this tension for quite a while. While I was using divination tools at home, I wasn't talking about them in the therapy room, and I really wanted to be talking about them. Um, and I couldn't figure out how to, how to talk about it um, with my clients. So when I closed my practice... Um, I'd been working with an intuitive healer for months um, and she actually lived in the Pacific Northwest. She lives on Vashon Island. And it just made me think about doing my work in a different way. And so the way I practice intuitive healing, of course, I was a therapist for a long time. So my brain is pretty analytical. I am, um, it's like therapy coaching plus uh, magic is what it feels like. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I think that's how my clients would describe it. Like once a therapist, always a therapist, but I'm not diagnosing people. And I'm, I start off with a meditation and, um, guides will come in and I'll talk about those and, or colors or images. And, um, it feels therapy didn't feel linear, but intuitive healing feels less linear than therapy. Like it's wherever spirit is moving me or the client is, um, moving me or their spirit guides. And then we always in sessions, I pull a card from a deck that I made. That's about healing from grief called transverse. And I pull a card for them. Um, and I also offer some practices, which include like, um, cards or goddess cards or, um, throw cards or any, any cards that speak to them, crystals, um, essential oils, just practices that I feel like will support them in their healing. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, really quickly. So you were a yoga teacher and you brought that in to work with your clients. Mm-hmm. And then you were doing divining practices at home. And that felt a little too weird to bring into the clients. I'm just kind of curious about that difference between yoga as in many ways, like a woo ancestral, spiritual, sacred, um, nonlinear practice in a lot of ways, and then divining practices. Um, and yeah, what do you think about that? Like, why does, why does one fit in and, and the other not so much? Or why did? I think, I mean, I think there's more, um, and this may be different regionally, right? Like depending on where we live, but I think more people, I'm aware of more people practicing yoga than um, using uh, divination tools. And I think a lot of people are and there's secrecy around it because like if you identify as a witch and then you go into an office and you're supposed to work and be professional, like witch doesn't equal professional. Mm-hmm. And again, I think like when I moved to Portland, there are magic stores in every corner, different than North Carolina. So that's why I'm naming it could be different based on where you are. Um, But I lived there for a very long time. And so I just think there's, I don't know if it's shame connected to um, claiming um, doing magic or being a witch or using um, divining tools. I think there's less shame because yoga has been like 
part of the mainstream culture. Mm-hmm. And, and most of the yoga I was offering to my clients, it, we didn't really move through, we might move through one posture or a visualization or a meditation um, because of so much trauma that they'd experienced. So I was pretty mindful about how much I introduced there. I wanted to start to connect um, the mind and body and the talk therapy with um, some connection to the body just so people could re-enter their bodies and like come home. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's the difference or that was the difference then. Like mm-hmm. I feel like it's I have a different way of working now. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. How much of your intuitive practice um, and maybe it's it's all of your practice, but how do you feel the difference or is there a difference between your intuitive practice and your embodiment practice? Um, I think both are intended to connect people um, more deeply with their, their intuition and um, both are about stillness and cultivating it so we can listen mm-hmm. to what's present. Um, a lot of my intuitive healing sessions are or virtual and so uh, there's there's meditation and some visualization not much movement um, yet I just haven't practiced very much of that virtually with people and so much typically what happens in the meditation for me is so much information comes in um, about the person and what's going on that we just spend time unpacking that and working with that energetically um, and I think the embodied practice and intuitive healing are really, the intention is the same. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's true of all of my work. Like, can we, can we cultivate stillness? Can we get to the truth? Um, can we transform the way we're living? Mm-hmm. Um, can we remember we're in relationship? Right? And that relationship matters mm-hmm. in a culture that disembodies us. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, going back to that earlier question about where's the place for yoga and where's the place for divination. Um, I think a lot of my question is something that I'm asking myself a lot about yoga and how it's, um, incorporated. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and really feeling it as a deeply magical practice and a deep listening practice. Um, and then, of course, you know, it's such a journey to go mm-hmm. into the the layers of the body and the subtle bodies and find all these things that are blocking intuition or blocking relationship. Um, and it provides so much to, to help resolve and, and reintegrate. And then in, in these other practices that for me, um, astrology is the one that I'm really versed in. Um, but it's it's the same, right? Like yoga and Ayurveda use Vedic astrology, mm-hmm. and astrology charts are a map of the body, basically, and they show where the constrictions are and where there's excess, and they give remediation. Mm-hmm. Um, but one has been like packaged in a particular way for consumer culture, and yoga, I think, is one of those things yeah. that has really been that the essence of it maybe still remains in, you know, in any kind of practices that are calling themselves yoga, but in large part, it feels like it's been quite divorced and that right. it's a, it's a fitness 
um, mm -hmm. regime mm -hmm. <laughs> of some kind. But um, we were talking a little while ago that uh, about your relationship with yoga um, and the the question that we were kind of circling around was this question of cultural appropriation. And um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, how you've experienced your relationship to yoga as a black woman. And you mentioned um, experiences with its studios and, and feeling this kind of reinforced oppression and trauma. But um, if you could also just talk about how you've found air quotes found yoga mm -hmm. um what your journey with it has been and and as an intuitive kind of um what if any intersections you've found yeah i um my practice has shifted over time um when i first went through yoga teacher training i actually went through a power yoga teacher training um, from a teacher who was trained by Baron Baptiste. And I, I, I went through her training because it was um, accessible in the sense of like it was on the weekends and I was working full time and I could afford to pay for it. And it was in town, so I didn't have to like fly somewhere and, and do it. Um, so I didn't, I wasn't very discerning about, you know, like, the teacher, I was more, I was like, Oh, this is accessible. And I did take classes from her and she did teach me how to breathe in a way that felt really transformative. And so that did draw me in. Like, that was like, okay, I can do this. And I remember like being in that power yoga training and knowing that I had a different understanding of power, mm. like that it wasn't about physically, it was never about pushing my body past its limits. And I didn't care about how many um, push-ups we did or boat poses we did it was more like okay I'm one of a few people of color in this class and how is power playing out mm -hmm. in this space so I, I was I went in I mean I had that lens right sitting in the, the class over and over and over but we we didn't talk about it um, and I had a, when I went to my 500 hour I had a similar experience but I was exposed to different teachers through that and we didn't talk about power we didn't talk about privilege we didn't talk about oppression um, and so I felt invisibilized there and then I because I was a therapist before a yoga teacher I think that shaped how I started to like how I taught classes so I was teaching flow classes or vinyasa classes and sometimes they were called power yoga classes and the intention was to allow people to tune in, to listen to their bodies more than they were listening to me. Um, to uh, I always offer modifications, so like people feel like they don't have to push. I always talk about efforting and ease and a balance of those things. So I, I brought that in, even though I was taught to teach like power and push through and pain those things, they don't resonate with me. They never have. And there's enough pain in the world. Um, and, and I don't want to cultivate more of it. And I, I don't want to invite people into mm -hmm. bringing, like bringing more pain into their experience. Right. That makes no sense to me. And that right. doesn't feel like yoga to right. me to be very clear. Yay. Yeah. Like that's not, that's not how I understand yoga and my practice now in teaching, I teach a lot of yin. I teach a lot of, um, restorative, um, I teach some flow, but not much. 
it's been interesting to watch because I think my the change and shift in my practice and my teaching reflects my own process of um, prioritizing self-care and rest. Mm -hmm. And so now that's what I'm offering to -hmm. people, which again, I think helps them cultivate stillness and tune in to Mm -hmm. what they need. And um, it allows them to create some space between like their thoughts and their heart, right. And their thoughts and their spirit. So they're not so, um, driven by their thoughts um, or internalizations or narratives. Mm-hmm. So there's some space to hold. I think I, I was talking about this earlier today with someone about her, t- her heart and what her heart needed. And I think that's what I try to speak to in classes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you like, so yoga is, this construct, right? It's a constructed uh, pastime that, <laughs> that we're all taking part of in, in totally radically different ways. I mean, all the people who are practicing yoga and doing very different things. Um, and so as an idea, it stems from like an Indian and Hindu lineage. And then in the last 100, 200 years, there's been a lot of influence from Western calisthenics, from Asian martial arts, from who knows where. And then, of course, the corporate lens and um, you're talking about, I don't want to impose more pain on people's bodies. And I'm thinking about kind of um, white, maybe like Germanic rooted uh, exercise fitness practices that are like very no pain, no gain, kind of aggressive. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, that really make up a lot of the fitness industry now that feel like they've also been swallowed by the idea of what yoga is for a lot of people. Um, But then yoga has also branched into all of these other things. Um, So you bring it into your work with social justice. And um, within the the conversation around social justice, there's a lot of um, need and practice around cultural sensitivity. So kind of going back to that idea of like, well, how do you position Mm -hmm. yourself? How do you feel your own relationship to yoga and what you understand its origins to be? Yeah, I um, learned about cultural appropriation in the dismantling racism training that I went to. This is the first time I heard about it 20 plus years ago. And the way that it was explained to me was taking something from a culture Um, without any appreciation or perhaps any relationship with um, a culture or people who are connected to it. Um, And I feel like, I mean, the U.S. and colonization, it's like (laughs) taking so many things from groups. I mean, it's like that's what, right. And so it it may, like, that's where I first heard about it. And then when I started to practice yoga, I knew that like white people did not create yoga. Like I knew that going into it. Um, and yet white people, they were practicing yoga around me. And I was like, what is, what's happening? What's going on? And I was, I think I was always, I just questioned whether or not I should be practicing it or I should find a different practice. Um, and the breath in yoga and the way it was talked about was so I have asthma and has since I was a child. 
So it was so um, expansive and the breath was like medicine. Uh, I think that's what drew me into the practice and then moving with the breath in a body that actually doesn't move very freely in a culture that doesn't want me to be free. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that's what like drew me in. And still I sat with the question about, is it okay that I'm practicing this when I don't actually understand um, all the different parts of yoga? Um, I don't understand where it's from. I heard where it's from, right? But I don't understand that ancestrally. Um, and I, I'm sure I have a memory of, at least in my body of my ancestors being taken from land, brought to a new place, right? Enslaved. Um, and things taken away from them, like language and family split apart and um, ritual. And so I, I'm aware of that. And I think that's what made me have the question about is that, how am I harming um, people um, who are connected to this practice? Like it's in their, it's their lineage. And so I'd go and practice yoga and asana and meditation with that question all the time. And after I, or as I was writing skill in action, I was thinking about it more because skill in action is like this anti-oppression, anti-racism lens plus yoga and how yoga spaces haven't been inclusive. And I was like reckoning with, um, should I be offering this frame, like this, um, I guess framing in a different way? Like, should I be, is it my work to talk about yoga and justice? I mean, I think that's the core of the question that I was present to. And I didn't really resolve that before the book. I don't think it's resolved now, but I didn't resolve it before the book came out. Um, and I tried to, in the book, really rely on what I know about racism and white supremacy and my experience in um, yoga spaces that are in the U.S. that have been mostly white. Like, I tried to um, stick to what I know, like, Mm -hmm. and my experience. And I've been thinking about it a lot more and, like, um, because I've had some very little feedback, but some feedback from a woman who is um, Indian who um, like asked about the cover of my book, which is the Om symbol and has words written in it. Right. And, you know, to her that felt like it was, uh, I don't remember the word she used, but maybe inappropriate or like not how she'd be doing it. And um, so I'm just aware that like, I'm, I don't know everything about this practice and yet I have something to say about it. Mm-hmm. And how can I do that in a way that still honors the practice and what I understand about it? But I'm still clearly still struggling with it. Yeah. Well, I appreciated what um, we were talking about earlier, which was the eight limb path. For everybody that can't see the my cat, cat is here. here. <laughs> it's it's a thing that happens at night. She's She's got I, some things to say about this. She does, yeah. I do most of my recording in the morning when she's snoozing, but... Now it's nighttime, so she's yeah, awake. She's awake. Um, anyway, so earlier when we were having dinner, we were talking about the eight-limbed path mm-hmm. and how much of a um, guide it's been for both of us. Um, so maybe we could kind of branch into that as a place to go from here. And But before we do, um, I had a thought when, when you were talking about you know, whether or not it's, it's your practice, which is that 
you know, I, I like keep thinking about how Dharma is now, you know, like the path is right now. (laughs) There's no self, there's no path, there's no goal. It's just here. Yeah. And so that of course it's like the work that you're doing and the work that all of us are doing, like trying to figure out how to take everything that we're given and that we receive and that we take and then turn it into something to give. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's such a, it's such an interesting moment. I think with, with social justice language really coming into a, a more, um, popular and, and global awareness and the thing that we're doing with all of these questions, but, um, the, the feeling of reverence is something that um, I experience a lot from you and it mm. seems like that's a really important piece in the cultural appropriation question that it's like we can't help but be influenced by everything right and cultural appropriation has existed since humans had <laughs> cultures right um but that that point that you brought up earlier of like taking something that isn't really mm-hmm. given of repackaging it of selling it back to you you know of, of making something exclusive and separating people from um, their birthright is feels really important. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so the eight limbs, I they've have been and uh, were and and have continued to be a really um, I think maybe like the most salient and potent piece of of yogic philosophy that I've absorbed. Um, should we go through them or talk about what they are in case people don't know? Yes, I was just trying to remember the order. Asana is the first one. Uh, the eight limbs? No, it's not. It's not. No, um, the, the yamas. Ni- I thought it was the niyamas and yamas. Yeah. And then I was like going to yeah. asana. Yama, niyama, asana, pranayama. Yes. Um, so, well, so f- maybe before that, like, so eight limbs, ashtanga. Yes. Right. Is not to be confused with ashtanga, like the, the like physical practice right. of a million sun salutations. And- <laughs> That's not what we're talking about. <laughs> That's not what we're talking about. So um, I, I first came across it as like ra, uh, part of Raja Yoga, which is mm-hmm. royal yoga. Um, but the eight limbs are like these. This is the path for any aspirant. Mm-hmm. And if you want to do yoga, then you can do the first four of them. And then the second four are said to spontaneously arise. Mm-hmm. But that the eight-limbed path is the path of yoga. Um, so then within the eight limbs, the first two are the yamas Yamas and the niyamas, which each are 10 things, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, and for me, at least the, the yamas have been, um, something that I've been working with for intensively for the last five years. They were the foundation for the yoga teacher training that, um, I created with Sarah Chalice and the, um, a, a huge project that I did a couple of years ago. I imagine they're a big piece of, of your work as mm-hmm, well. Mm-hmm. Should we start with them? We the can. Yamas? Yes. Um, all right. So the first yama <laughs> is ahimsa and nonviolence. Um, nonviolence. I would love to hear, I mean, you've already already been talking about mm-hmm. it, but I would love to hear how this concept um, lands for you and what you do with it. Well, it's the um, yama that I've heard the most about in classes um, throughout my practice of yoga, which I think is interesting. Uh, and sometimes I've heard about 
uh, ahimsa with real deep intention and around people leaving the space and like practicing nonviolence, right? And practicing it in the space like as well. Um, but there's a way yoga has been practiced where like people roll out their mats and then they're, they roll it up and they're gone and they, they're like not in relationship. So I've heard teachers talk about it in a way that uh, connects people with like to relationship. And I also have heard about it, heard people describe ahimsa and it feels superficial. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the way that I talk about it is it feels like it is so connected to a lot of the things we talked about before, like all the ways the culture has been violent. (laughs) And um, so it's not just about individual violence, although that's, that feels important. And yet we need to have a conversation about cultural violence Mm -hmm. and all the different manifestations of it. And so that's how I think about it. Um, Like what does it actually mean to acknowledge history and the violence and try to heal from it and also be accountable and responsible and create systems of repair and acknowledge harm, like in relationships Mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, the individual body can't exist without the cultural body. Right. Um, yeah. In, in the Swala program, we, we were working a lot with redefinitions, um, and one of one of the ways we were thinking about ahimsa was as listening, mm-hmm. and that this idea of nonviolence, like it's so easy to put it off onto something that um, is tangible, like be a vegetarian, right? Um, or you know, like don't raise your voice, right? Um, which then kind of lead into, I think, more neoliberal ideas of what activism mm-hmm. is or or should be, but. Um, that nonviolence, ha- it like has to be kind of like a case by case basis, um, especially within complex systems and overlapping systems of oppression. That there are times when it, like you have to raise your voice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not you know the nonviolent thing to do is not to right. be silent. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and I haven't heard many. Um, teachers or spaces talk about it in the way we're talking about it. Yeah. That's why I think I said it, I've heard it. It's like superficial. And I think it's because people don't really understand what it means. Right. Because the culture says, don't talk about what's happening in the culture. (laughs) So then how, how can I expect a teacher then to talk about it in this deep way when that's not actually what they've been trained to do or conditioned to do? Right. Because it's much easier to think of violence as something that's like, Oh, I'll perpetuate that. If Mm -hmm. I have this, you know, very decisive action of uh, aggression towards another person, but they, but potentially none of us are seeing it in the ways that we uh, look at someone, the word choices that we have, the the voting choices, you know, that we make or where we're buying our products from or um, the things that we're choosing to not see, which Mm -hmm. is a lot of what I'm hearing too Mm -hmm. from you. It's like, the places where we choose to not engage also have a, yes. a violence to them. Yes. And we're bystanders. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So then the second yama. Satya. Satya. Mm-hmm. You want to start with that one? I love it. In my um, mind, it is about um, truth-telling and um, speaking truth and 
that feels so tied to justice and so naming um, where injustice exists and not being silent about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember learning about it, this yama and thinking, oh, that's so connected to justice. Like it stuck with me to not be silent and to speak truth. And of course, to think about the, like how truth lands with people um, and the way we speak truth and that it's still important to say what's going on. Yeah. yeah. Again, in a culture that says deny the truth right. or pretend. Right. Yeah. The the first person that I learned the yamas from um, was very careful in telling us that we always are referencing the one before. Mm-hmm. And so with the idea of, of truth or honesty, that there's also nonviolence. Right. That's foundational to it. And so this, I forget um, what this map is, but it's kind of like, you know, this map that you take your idea through before it comes out of your mouth. Mm -hmm. But basically, you know, first, like, is it true? Second, is Mm -hmm. it, you know, um, now I'm forgetting the other ones, but there's something in there of like, is a person ready to hear it? Mm -hmm. Are they ready to receive it? Mm -hmm. And the, I think one place that I often feel tension in myself is like when something is true, how do I know it's true? And um, when should I speak to it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, discernment feels like it's part of the practice of truth-telling. Right. And um, I think... It is important to be mindful of how we speak truth and also rec- like we need to recognize that people have been silenced and, un- and unable to speak truth and there's anger that hasn't been like tended to, right? It, right. It, and and um, and I've seen in trainings before in any kind of training, yoga or a dismantling racism training that when the person that's being marginalized or has been marginalized by the culture speaks truth to someone who's marginalized them. Right. And it represents privilege that the person who, who um, embodies the privilege can feel uncomfortable. Yeah. And then say, well, that, that truth actually, it hurt. And it's like, well, right. What about all of the hurt? Right. That person or a group of being beings has experienced because of how culture was constructed. Right. Yeah, thank you for saying that. I I think, um, and what I was saying before, that's something that I was trying to get at was the tension of mm-hmm. of when is when is someone receptive to it? Like, right. how, like how how do we know and how do we do that? And when is something worth saying, whether or not we think someone might be receptive? It just needs to be said, right? And it might need to be said really loudly. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I sometimes think, though, that maybe the next one is the answer to that. So the third yama is um, asteya, which translates as non-stealing. And I think maybe, you know, that in in that question of, like, when is when should we say the thing that we need to say, mm-hmm. that there's also the responsibility of anyone who's holding space and listening to not steal someone's experience, not steal someone's voice. Um, 
and then to reflect on what has been taken, like you said. So there have not been opportunities for this truth Mm -hmm. to be shared. Like Mm -hmm. there's been a lot of stifling, a lot of oppression. And as, you know, if anyone is in a body that has more, more privilege or is in the role of someone who's maintaining an oppressive system, whether or not they think they're choosing it, to, to recognize how violating it is to have something stolen. Right. Right. Hmm. And that's a skill. I feel like people haven't been conditioned or haven't been taught the skill of, um, of recognizing or seeing the history and its impact. Right. That's part of what I hear in that. Yeah. Because then there's accountability. Right. Or acknowledging harm and repair. Right. And I think that's something that a lot of white folks, at least people that are in circles that I share, Mm -hmm. like that a lot of us are talking about, which is um, the kind of theft of identity that Mm -hmm. is... um, part of being white, you know, that, that there is, there is no identity in whiteness. So all of us have been consumed into this mass thing, just yeah. like anyone with black, black melanated skin, you know, has been consumed into blackness yeah. and our tribal cultures, the specific places that we came from mm-hmm. on whatever continent, you know, and, and whatever traditions and, um, ancestral memories that we have, that those are all swept into something that's much bigger. Mm-hmm. And blank, mm-hmm. and that especially as as white people, that there's this narrative about whiteness that really erases um, not just everybody else, but also so much of what I would say is like our souls, right? <laughs> that um, to to learn about what isn't taught in history books and what isn't kind of given and like. Hollywood media Mm -hmm. or wherever we learn Mm -hmm. about history um, is also to gain the opportunity to then feel into the complexity of those histories and maybe to open the doorway to friendship, like to actual relationship Mm -hmm. that is first of all, like with ourselves and (laughs) the the blankness that we're coming from. And then secondly, with um, anyone that's outside of a white identity. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, as you're saying, like white supremacy has disconnected white folks from themselves, like and other white people, and then people of color, and I mean that's the just the disconnection and dissociation that happens. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you relate to non-stealing as a person who holds an identity that is so has been stolen so much from? I think um, I'm trying to remember about how I wrote about it. I think um, our conversation about cultural appropriation comes back (laughs) into play here. And that um, I have three different thoughts. I'll answer the one about identity in just a moment. And the other thing that comes to mind and it's tied to the next Yama is about not taking um, more than we need. So I think about resources. 
um, and how culture set up some of us to thrive and others to suffer or perish. Um, and related to identity, I th- what came to mind was like the resiliency actually that people of color have or, or um, I have as a black person and that people, my ancestors and um, family members embody like strength and survival and resilience. And so in some ways I feel like, yes, people are stealing and taking and have taken my ancestors and there's something that's like untouchable. Mm. I just feel very clear about it. And um, so I think that's why I'm relating to the non-stealing in a, in a way that's, I just think there's part of me that white supremacy will not touch or take. And it's older than me, right? It's not just me. It's like my grandmother and great grandma, you know, it's deep. Um, so in some ways I feel like white supremacy can't steal, right? The, my essence, it's, um, and, and everything that we've had to survive. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't know. I know it culturally like identity and blackness is, has been co-opted and commercialized and um, people are profiting off of it. I know that. And, um, there's some part of like blackness that whiteness will never get. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Well, the next yama, a parigraha. No. Brahmacharya. And then a parigraha. Yeah. I'm so, y'all, I've been awake for a long time. (laughs) So I was like, I said the first one. I don't know. I do know, but I've been awake for hours. Um, Um, If I'm not teaching these regularly, I. Yeah. It's like there's one or another there. (laughs) Brahmacharya. Yeah. It's an interesting one. What do you think about brahmacharya? Um, Okay, so brahmacharya is most often translated as mm-hmm. celibacy. Mm-hmm. And then some people like to call it uh, right use of sexual energy. Yeah, I always get kind of a kick out of the right use, whatever that is. I, I think about it as the way I've, I'm talk, I've been talking about it is related to identity mm-hmm. and space mm-hmm. and how we use our energy and how much space we take up, mm-hmm. which is, I know, a departure from um, its uh, like original translation and, and uh, meaning. Um, and we also live in a culture where people um, misuse sexual energy, right, and harm people and abuse people and so much has been on social media through me too about sexual violence. So that's been going on for a very long time. And so my, my thought, my like framing around it, I'm thinking about it more and how I want to talk about it because of what the culture is talking about. It feels like there's been a shift and more people are talking about sexual violence. And so I'm like curious about talking about it in that way. And the way I've been talking about it is around identity and space and privilege and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that kind of energy. Yeah, that makes sense. One of the ways I've been thinking about it is to go back to, again, to go back to the previous one of non-stealing is actually like not stealing people's sexual experience. And one thing that 
has always been very surprising and confounding to me in like yoga, which is a place where we're supposed to be getting in touch with our bodies and our breath and healing is that there's never any talk about sexuality or sex or genitals mm-hmm. except for like the ubiquitous kind of like mulabanda mm-hmm. thing or like pull up the pelvic floor, you know, like tighten, <laughs> contract, yeah. which feels kind of the opposite. Um, but I know like if I am like getting in touch with my vagina and feeling like my own desire, then my energy really shifts and like I feel mm-hmm. completely different kind of uh, awareness and availability in my lower body. And also just as a yoga teacher, knowing that what is it like one in every three women has mm-hmm. been raped. And so if I have 13 women identified people in my class, then at least three or four of them right. have experienced sexual violence and feeling like it's really my responsibility to like hold space for that in some way yes. to speak to it or um, give, invite some kind of access. And then of course, like don't, um, you know, don't not ask like the consent piece right, feels of course. really important with, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. with, with the day's topics or this time, mm-hmm. my cat keeps just circling around the room and then wants to be picked up. <laughs> she'll, she'll come and sit on my lap for a minute and then wants to get down. Um, okay. And then the last one is of the a parigraha. is a parigraha. Do you want to explain that one? That's what I was referencing. That's gradelessness. Is that, mm-hmm. yeah, that's why I thought it came after Estea because they feel similar to me. Yeah. Um, so like Brahmacharya was talking about identity and space and privilege and then, um, the culture and how violent it is and sexual violence. And this one feels like, um, there's non-stealing and greedlessness feels like understanding in my mind, our attachments and not taking more than we need. Mm-hmm. Um, in a culture that says consume everything because right. you'll feel better. Right. <laughs> so that's how I think about it. Like there's a lot of people, there's a lot of uh, people have taken more than they need and our planet is dying because of it. Right. And we're dying because of it. And we have to practice in a different way. Like we, or we won't survive. Like that's right. the deal. Right. So that's how I think about it. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I have a, I think of it, um, Parigraha, I've always heard it translated as non-grasping, mm-hmm. and to me it feels a lot like letting things change and not seeking to maintain power and control, mm-hmm. um, and I think like what you were talking about earlier with reference to um, white people feeling uncomfortable yeah. when a person of color is speaking their truth, that mm-hmm. like that's really where a party com- mm-hmm. can come in of like this not grasping to, you know, like, per- like personness right. in that moment, because I think that there's such a temptation to personalize it. And for white people to think like, well, I haven't done anything, mm-hmm. you know, like it's not my, it's not my fault, mm-hmm. which, um, you know, is, is largely true. It's like, it's not, 
any of our fault that these systems exist and it is a place that you know we can we can help dismantle if we become aware of them right but in order to do that we have to let go of personness and like identifying with them and ask them yeah hmm. yeah um because I mean, whiteness has conditioned all systems of power condition folks who are benefiting from that power or embodying that um, one that they're entitled to it. Right. right. And deserving. Right. Um, and that we earned it. Right. That too. Mm-hmm. And that we're individuals who worked hard and earned yeah. it. So there's a lot of narrative around it. Um, and I think what we're seeing culturally is a, is fear and a like desperately trying to hold on to the, how yes. systems of power, how they were constructed as people are trying to dismantle them. Yep. Yep. A lot of grasping. Yes. A lot. <laughs> seeing a lot of grasping. Okay. So all those five things are the first limb, mm-hmm. right? So, so to even get on the path, you have to practice those. You have to practice those. And when I think of like, I know my own work with the Yamas has just been hugely transformational, especially in like interrogating what mm-hmm. they are mm-hmm. and trying to find my own space for identifying with them and making them relevant. Because one thing that has happened is that I've started to trust myself. And I, and I think I, a, a couple of years ago, I did a year long project on, on the Yamas um, that during that year, I realized, like, I haven't, I haven't been trusting myself because I couldn't. You know, there were places where on some level I knew that I was lying or I knew mm-hmm. that I was stealing. And, it, and it's not that now I don't, you know, like, I still drive a car. I still um, do all, so many things probably every single day that are violent, that are greedy, da, da, da. But in as many ways possible, like I'm trying to bring them to light more. Mm -hmm. And one thing I was realizing before was that there were ways that I was engaging with um, my own poor behavior and keeping it unconscious from myself. Like, I don't know if that makes sense, Mm -hmm. like kind of keeping it in a shadow with myself. And then as I was going through these reflections and really asking myself, like, where am I not being honest and then trying to practice honesty more or trying to practice non-stealing or whatever it was that, I mean, I still fuck up all the time, but I trust myself more. Like I trust mm-hmm. my own intent more. I trust that I've like, that I'm actually a good person mm-hmm. when I do, because I've, I've been working with these for a while and it doesn't, I guess just to close that out, like it definitely doesn't feel like I'm a better person just to state that but it's like I know that I've been paying attention to some things and so like if I'm messing up I don't do the thing that I used to do before which is like get really defensive about it you know if someone calls me out on something like it feels like that shell of ego has softened with this Mm -hmm. practice and and it's allowed me to get in touch more with what I would say is my essence or something Mm mm-hmm yeah, I think um, the way that I've, one, I feel like it, it, I don't practice the, the yamas all the time, like I'm human, right? Mm-hmm. And because they feel so 
like connected to justice. Um, I feel like I'm aware of them through my lens of understanding what it would take to create a just world. So like I use them as like, in my way of thinking of like, what would the world be like if everyone practiced these things? Right. Practiced. I didn't say like always live into, but practiced. Right. And so that's, I'm thinking about it connected to vision and vision for the world. Um, and just the way we uh, would relate, um, or what's possible. Yeah. When we think about the yamas or, I mean, the path as a way of being. Well, I think that what you just said is so important, which is that it's not about getting them right. Like you can't, right. You literally cannot live in a human body and be nonviolent. Like it just is impossible. Right. Um, and there's always going to be some time when you can't tell the whole truth, or maybe you don't even know what it is, or you take something and there's always that. Yeah. But I, I think that that's kind of the beauty of them as a practice is that they can't be attained. Mm -hmm. And, and I mean, we could, we can be devoted to practicing them. Yes. Yeah. And to each other in that way. Right. 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 That'd be different. Right. (laughs) Imagine if the curriculum of K through 12 was based on the yamas. Just the yamas. Just the yamas. That was it. But maybe the niyamas also. Yes, too. Like what we need to do. Yes. So then the niyamas are the personal observances. There's also five. Maybe we'll fly through them a little quicker. Yeah. Um, so Saucha is the first one. Cleanliness. Cleanliness, which you can take that so far. I yeah. mean, cleanliness for like your psychic space, your mental space, your home space, your shared environment with mm-hmm. your neighborhood and the rest of the planet. Um, basically do you pick up after yourself? Right. And uh, yes. Are you aware that you're, you have, you like <laughs> impact other people? Are you aware that people? you poop? You're right. Like you need to. Yeah. Clean up your stuff. And then Santosha is the second one. That's kind of the what I was thinking of when you were talking about um, Aparigraha. Yeah, contentment. Mm-hmm. Um, which, it, yeah, I think it's a, I can't remember how I wrote about it in the book. There's some, like, awareness of acknowledging where we are and um, that we must change. Because, like, and contentment, that's not what contentment means. It's like being with what is. So I want us to see what is and then figure out how we want to respond right. to it. Um, but I'm sure that's how I <laughs> wrote about it in the book because right. that's so much of who I am. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think yeah. with that too, something that I have been learning so much the last few years, keep learning all the time, especially like as a white person trying to like work with social justice movements is how important it is to be patient mm-hmm. and like deal with my urgency. Yeah. Because it, I think it's really easy for a lot of people, but then like white people have this particular way of doing it where it's like, Oh my God, you guys, did you hear this thing called racism? What the fuck? Like we have to do yeah. something. And there's like this big fire that gets lit up underneath everyone's ass and this need to like go out and do things. But then because there hasn't been this like, deeper work of, of listening, like Mm -hmm. you're saying, of really like absorbing and kind of following the leadership of people of color, (laughs) kind of just like getting more into a space of service Mm -hmm. and not so much of a doing Mm -hmm. that contentment 
to me in that context feels really important of like you're saying, like there is work to be done and like, I can't be in any moment other than the one I'm in right now. Right. And if I don't know what, what the next step to take is like, just chill. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a good framing of it. Hmm. And I'm trying to remember the third one. Tapas. Oh, well, some people talk about it in different ways, like perseverance, passion, heat. I've heard it. Discipline. Yeah. Discipline. Um, I've heard it described in so many ways. And I think through the lens of justice, I'm, I think about perseverance and persistence, like, which is connected to discipline. And I mean, I think there's a tension with if you, if you embody the privilege, then you have the option to walk away, which you really don't like on a soul level. None mm-hmm. of us do. And if the, like, if I'm in the group that's marginalized, I can't walk away. And so there's something about cultivating a discipline to around, um, sticking with it. Yeah. Understanding we have a responsibility sticking with it. And even when it feels challenging or there's despair, right. That's how I think about it. And like that heat, we actually do need, I think about, um, fire. We do need heat to build movements mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> and, and perseverance yeah I think of, of uh, Tapas as I think I I can't remember if I read this um, in Iyengar's book or someone told me about it but that it's the the heat that's built in um, the practice of like holding dualism mm-hmm. and opposition that it's such a natural tendency for all of us. And it's what our minds do best is to compare things and to separate. So, Oh, it's that way or it's this way. Yeah. And that it's, it's neither, it's both, it's, and, Mm -hmm. and it's something else. Mm -hmm. And so to just be in this place of like feeling the way that I want a quick answer, I want something to be Mm -hmm. certain or whatever it is. I want to push past something. And it's kind of like that thing that I was saying around urgency where it's like, no, just mm. pause. Like you mm-hmm. don't know yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but then especially I think one of the things that yoga does in that it's, it is such a spiritual practice of union and of getting us in touch with more of a true nature is that the tension of opposition like really comes up with identity layers mm-hmm. and um, I would imagine that it's similar for black folks, but probably very different the way that the ideas of what you are based on this construction of race start to fall away. Like when that tension is held Mm-hmm. Of like, yes, this is an experience that I've had. It's very much me and I'm all of this mm-hmm. and I'm none of that or whatever it is, you know, that. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, in dismantling racism trainings, I talk about, or in yoga trainings, uh, race as a construct so that it was made up and that it changed over time and it has real power. Right. And so it's like, so when yoga teachers have suggested that I can transcend my identities, that feels very 
particularly if it's a white yoga teacher saying it, mm-hmm. um, that is like not true right. at all. Because in that moment, if a white teacher is saying that to me or a white person, <laughs> they aren't recognizing the ways in which culture has made meaning of blackness. Mm-hmm. Um, and they also are not understanding their whiteness and the power, like, in that moment to say that in a space. Right. Like, the freedom that comes from being able to transcend identity in a culture that that's not actually what's happening in culture. Right. Um, so there's, there's that, and there's something about internalized oppression and the messages we're taking in from culture that are not us. Right. Um, so it is holding both. Well, and, I mean, tell me if this is off base but I I imagine that like through your day-to-day life as well as like any kind of experiences that you're having with divination for sure and probably yoga and counseling too that like you access this part of yourself that's way bigger than a body right and that can't be contained within a, a racialized identity and and that like that part of you is like so it probably like can't be separated from blackness and the way that you feel Mm -hmm. it as like this glorious thing that you are. Mm -hmm. But it also like, I think that the tension of like being in a body, like having to submit to the rules of the terrestrial plane, which is like you're, you live in a body that goes through all the things that bodies go through, like boundaries and limits and age. But then also that is read by other humans and treated in certain ways because of what your body signifies. Mm-hmm. That, like, that's actually the tension of, like, being in that place of, like, this is my body. This is the capacity of my body at this moment. Mm-hmm. Or, like, this is mm-hmm. the experience that is very real for me in my life because of what my body represents. And then, like, this is me. Right. <laughs> yeah. That makes sense. Um so many, we talked about all the things. So many possible yeah. ways we could go from here. Okay, so we talked about then the last two are um, self study and then devo- like, and then devotion. Yeah, right. And for so is, is we don't need to use the Sanskrit names. Ishvara Pranidhana and um, Svadhyaya mm-hmm. is self study. Yeah. So know thyself. <laughs> Right. Self-study. Know who you are. Know where you come from. I think that's a lot of both of our work is trying to understand positioning. Yes. And its impact. Yes. Social location. Witnessing mm-hmm. your reaction to things. and Yeah. Just experience witnessing. Watching your thoughts. Right. And then devotion to something greater, mm-hmm. which I guess will bring us to the end, which, and these kind of, this idea that I had, I was going to talk to you mostly about your intuition, but we've talked mostly about yoga, but maybe this idea of devotion to something greater can just lead us into this last bit um, to circle back to intuition mm-hmm. and what I imagine that all of these practices that you're doing all the time in many different iterations, which probably allows you to access your intuition in in a deeper way. Do you feel your intuition as a connection with something greater? Yeah. I, um, I had a concussion in, um, 20, 
14. And after I hit my head, I, I, so many things changed in my life. Um, and one friend described it as like shift it, like I had to hit my head to actually make the big changes that, that needed to be made. Of course, I wish I hadn't hit my head because it actually took a long time to recover from it. Um, and it shifted direction, like the way I was moving and not the core of who I am, but the way I was moving in the world. And so, and it also opened up um, a connection to intuition and the need uh, for um, spiritual practice um, in addition to yoga, like I needed some other tools and I also needed tools because of the, like at one point I was feeling so much trauma and PTSD from um, what the meaning that cultures made of blackness and police brutality that was happening and violence. And I, I was feeling a lot of fear. And so I kind of needed something that would help me make sense of things, except that like spirit, like a connection with spirit beyond like knowing I'm held it sort of did the opposite, right? It did, it's not tangible in some ways. It's like, um, I just know I'm held and my ancestors are holding me and there's a connection to something bigger than me. And, um, but I needed some like to ground because the, the ground didn't feel like it was stable because of the culture. Um, and I'd hit my head and was just in a more liminal space, um, which is not unusual for people who hit their heads, like who have brain injuries. And so, I, I feel like those two things led me into a deeper practice of meditation, into exploring more divination tools, um, shifting my connection with spirit and ancestors and like calling on them and calling them in. And so now I feel I've always been intuitive and I've always, and in my family, like I've, I've known that, um, like my mom has premonitions that, you know, that we are paying attention and we notice things and I'm very observant. I always have been. And so I knew that, but it like went to a different level after hitting my head. And, um, now I feel so guided by intuition, which feels like spirit. And I listen and people say this about me, like moving to Portland for some reason, I was hearing to move to Portland. I'd said it a few years ago and then decided to do it. And it was like in motion and I was listening and then trusting. Well, that feels like my intuition. And then when it was time to go back, I was only in Portland for a year and I feel like I was supposed to be here for that year. Um, I, my grandmother passed away and I moved back to be closer to my family. And I feel like she she couldn't talk, but she basically told me to come back home. Your grandma. Yeah. When she was dying. And I listened to her and spirit and intuition and, and moved back. And people just said, they like witnessed me being led mm. and listening. Like I will ask the universe or spirit for, I will ask questions and ask for answers. And then when I get the answer, I'll act mm-hmm. like, because, um, I think there's a risk when we don't. Yeah. And I'm not reactive and I'm not really impulsive, um, but I do listen deeply. Um, so I feel very connected to my intuition. Yeah. 
There are so many things I want to ask you, <laughs> and we have just a few more minutes. Um, so maybe I'll just ask you one more question before we end, which is as an intuitive healer and as a social justice warrior, worker, how do you think, um, like, what do you think the really pivotal steps for us? And when I say us, I mean a, a global culture for sure, but I also specifically mean people who are listening to this podcast and people who are mm-hmm. interested in this intersection and in mm-hmm. doing embodiment work and potentially people who um, are POC, who are black, who are like doing this bridging mm-hmm. work of, of social justice and embodiment. And then also the white folks, mm-hmm. that's a big group of people, but yeah. like, yeah, where, what are you rooting for? Like, what are you pushing for right now? Um, two things I talked about earlier. One is like cultivating enough stillness so that we can remember to remember and then listen and create new ways of being based on what we hear. Um, and grief, I think, um, when we remember and really tune in and can feel, which requires like being embodied and connected, um, then we can acknowledge and grieve and heal. That's what I want. Um, and for folks of color, I think there's a lot of noise about what it means to be black or indigenous or a person of color and meaning what we're internalizing from the white supremacist culture and, um, racism. And I just want to say like to, to, um, that's not who we are. And so that's just noise that's been constructed that causes harm. And so I feel like it's really important for folks of color to um, take the time to practice, um, engage with healing practices so that in order to connect to intuition in a culture that um, makes so much noise that it's hard to hear the truth. I think that, and I think white folks like it's it is the remembering to remember, and it's the non grasping, and it's um, because whiteness is tied to competitiveness and productivity and pushing through and perfectionism, and um, those things move people away from their deepest knowing and wisdom. And so I think for white folks, it's like countering the internalized white superiority mm-hmm. to get to the truth mm-hmm. and then to a lot like create alignment and create new ways of being. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. <laughs> I'll quell all my other bursting <laughs> questions. questions and directions. Yeah. So, thanks for having me. Yeah. Thank you so much for being, um, for being here, for mm-hmm. talking. Um, where can we find you next? You, where will I be? I will be um, 
So if you go to my website, michellecjohnson.com, the events through April, which is my visit to Portland, those are listed. And then I have a bunch more coming up over the summer that will be up on my site soon. Um, then I'll be in um, Knoxville this weekend and then um, Vancouver, British Columbia, and then um, I'm sure some other places, but back in Portland in April. So I'm going to be doing a book reading on April 12th from um, 6 to 8 and leading a skill in action um, yoga and social justice workshop on the 13th and 14th from 12 to 6 p.m., both of those days. And um, all of uh, the book reading and the workshop, they will take place at Commotion PDX. And you can sign up um, for the workshop through my website. And I'm excited about the book reading and workshop here and having more time in Portland to work with folks. I'm also on Instagram. Skill in action is my handle. Um, and I, I put some stuff on my other page, which is mystic Cassandra. Cassandra is my middle name. And, um, that's like where more, they're sort of merging now, but I have two different Instagrams and then a okay. Facebook page, Michelle Cassandra Johnson or skill in action. Great. Yoga and social justice. So, yeah. Great. Yeah, and I'll include links um, to your website and also to the April event in Portland in the show notes. Mm -hmm. And then also, if um, you didn't hear it in the intro, check out Michelle's book, Skill in Action. Um, can you say the subtitle, which I'm forgetting right now? Radicalizing Your Yoga Practice to Create a Just World. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, definitely check out that book. So thanks so much, Michelle. Thank you. Have a good trip home tonight. I will. Thank you.